Chapter Seven, Part One of Sons and Lovers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Sons and Lovers, by D. H. Lawrence, Chapter Seven, Part One, Lad and Girl Love. Paul had been many times up to Willie Farm during the autumn. He was friends with the two youngest boys. Edgar, the eldest, would not condescend at first, and Miriam also refused to be approached. She was afraid of being set at naught, as by her own brothers. The girl was romantic in her soul. Everywhere was a Walter Scott heroine being loved by men with helmets or with plumes in their caps. She herself was something of a princess turned into a swine-girl in her own imagination. And she was afraid lest this boy— who nevertheless looked something like a Walter Scott hero, who could paint and speak French, and knew what algebra meant, and who went by train to Nottingham every day, might consider her simply as the swine-girl, unable to perceive the princess beneath. So she held aloof. Her great companion was her mother. They were both brown-eyed, and inclined to be mystical, such women as treasure religion inside them, breathe it in their nostrils, and see the whole of life in a mist thereof. So to Miriam, Christ and God made one great figure, which she loved tremblingly and passionately when a tremendous sunset burned out the western sky, and Edith's, and Lucy's, and Rowena's, Brian de Bois-Gilbert's, Rob Roy's, and Guy Mannering's rustled the sunny leaves in the morning, or sat in her bedroom aloft, alone, when it snowed. That was life to her. For the rest, she drudged in the house, which work she would not have minded, had not her clean red floor been mucked up immediately by the trampling farm-boots of her brothers. She madly wanted her little brother of four to let her swath him and stifle him in her love. She went to church reverently, with bowed head, and quivered in anguish from the vulgarity of the other choir-girls, and from the common-sounding voice of the curate. She fought with her brothers, whom she considered brutal louts, and she held not her father in too high esteem, because he did not carry any mystical ideals cherished in his heart, but only wanted to have as easy a time as he could, and his meals when he was ready for them. She hated her position as swine-girl. She wanted to be considered. She wanted to learn, thinking that if she could read, as Paul said he could read, Colomba or the Voyage autour de ma chambre, the world would have a different face for her and a deepened respect. She could not be princess by wealth or standing, so she was mad to have learning whereon to pride herself. For she was different from other folk and must not be scooped up among the common fry. Learning was the only distinction to which she thought to aspire. Her beauty, that of a shy, wild, quiveringly sensitive thing, seemed nothing to her. Even her soul, so strong for rhapsody, was not enough. She must have something to reinforce her pride, because she felt different from other people. Paul she eyed rather wistfully, on the whole, she scorned the male sex. But here was a new specimen, quick, light, graceful, 
who could be gentle, and who could be sad, and who was clever, and who knew a lot, and who had a death in the family. The boy's poor morsel of learning exalted him almost sky-high in her esteem, yet she tried hard to scorn him, because he would not see in her the princess but only the swine-girl, and he scarcely observed her. Then he was so ill, and she felt he would be weak. Then she would be stronger than he. Then she could love him. If she could be mistress of him in his weakness, take care of him, if he could depend on her, if she could, as it were, have him in her arms, how she would love him! As soon as the skies brightened, and Plum-Blossom was out, Paul drove off in the milkman's heavy float up to Willie Farm. Mr. Livers shouted in a kindly fashion at the boy, then clicked to the horse as they climbed the hill slowly, in the freshness of the morning. White clouds went on their way, crowding to the back of the hills that were rousing in the springtime. The water of Nethermere lay below, very blue against the seared meadows and the thorn-trees. It was four and a half miles' drive. Tiny buds on the hedges, vivid as copper-green, were opening into rosettes, and thrushes called, and blackbirds shrieked and scolded. It was a new, glamorous world. Miriam, peeping through the kitchen window, saw the horse walk through the big white gate into the farmyard that was backed by the oak-wood, still bare. Then a youth in a heavy overcoat climbed down. He put up his hands for the whip and the rug that the good-looking ruddy farmer handed down to him. Miriam appeared in the doorway. She was nearly sixteen, very beautiful, with her warm colouring, her gravity, her eyes dilating suddenly, like an ecstasy. "'I say,' said Paul, turning shyly aside, "'your daffodils are nearly out. Isn't it early? But don't they look cold?' "'Cold?' said Miriam, in her musical, caressing voice. "'The green on their buds—' And he faltered into silence timidly. "'Let me take the rug,' said Miriam, over-gently. "'I can carry it,' he answered, rather injured, but he yielded it to her. Then Mrs. Livers appeared. "'I'm sure you're tired and cold,' she said. Let me take your coat. It is heavy. You mustn't walk far in it." She helped him off with his coat. He was quite unused to such attention. She was almost smothered under its weight. "'Why, mother!' laughed the farmer, as he passed through the kitchen, swinging the great milk-churns. "'You've got almost more than you can manage there.' She beat up the sofa-cushions for the youth. The kitchen was very small and irregular. The farm had been originally a labourer's cottage. And the furniture was old and battered. But Paul loved it, loved the sack-bag that formed the hearth-rug, and the funny little corner under the stairs, and the small window deep in the corner, through which, bending a little, he could see the plum-trees in the back garden and the lovely round hills beyond. "'Won't you lie down?' said Mrs. Livers. "'Oh, no, I'm not tired,' he said. "'Isn't it lovely coming out, don't you think? I saw a slow-bush in blossom, 
and a lot of celandines. I'm glad it's sunny. Can I give you anything to eat or to drink? No, thank you. How's your mother? I think she's tired now. I think she's had too much to do. Perhaps in a little while she'll go to Skegness with me. Then she'll be able to rest. I shall be glad if she can. Yes, replied Mrs. Livers. It's a wonder she isn't ill herself. Miriam was moving about preparing dinner. Paul watched everything that happened. His face was pale and thin, but his eyes were quick and bright with life as ever. He watched the strange, almost rhapsodic way in which the girl moved about, carrying a great stew-jar to the oven, or looking in the saucepan. The atmosphere was different from that of his own home, where everything seemed so ordinary. When Mr. Livers called loudly outside to the horse, that was reaching over to feed on the rose-bushes in the garden, the girl started, looked round with dark eyes, as if something had come breaking in on her world. There was a sense of silence inside the house and out. Miriam seemed as in some dreamy tale, a maiden in bondage, her spirit dreaming in a land far away and magical, and her discoloured old blue frock and her broken boots seemed only like the romantic rags of King Kapatua's beggar-maid. She suddenly became aware of his keen blue eyes upon her, taking her all in. Instantly her broken boots and her frayed old frock hurt her. She resented his seeing everything. Even he knew that her stocking was not pulled up. She went into the scullery, blushing deeply. And afterwards her hands trembled slightly at her work. She nearly dropped all she handled. When her inside dream was shaken, her body quivered with trepidation. She resented that he saw so much. Mrs. Livers sat for some time talking to the boy, although she was needed at her work. She was too polite to leave him. Presently she excused herself and rose. After a while she looked into the tin saucepan. "'Oh, dear, Miriam!' she cried. "'These potatoes have boiled dry!' Miriam startled as if she had been stung. "'Have they, mother?' she cried. "'I shouldn't care, Miriam,' said the mother, "'if I hadn't trusted them to you.' She peered into the pan. The girl stiffened as from a blow. Her dark eyes dilated. She remained standing in the same spot. "'Well,' she answered, gripped tight in self-conscious shame, "'I'm sure I looked at them five minutes since.' "'Yes,' said the mother. I know it's easily done. They're not much burned, said Paul. It doesn't matter, does it? Mrs. Livers looked at the youth with her brown, hurt eyes. It wouldn't matter but for the boys, she said to him. Only Miriam knows what a trouble they make if the potatoes are caught. Then, thought Paul to himself, you shouldn't let them make a trouble. After a while Edgar came in. He wore leggings, and his boots were covered with earth. He was rather small, rather formal, for a farmer. He glanced at Paul, nodded to him distantly, and said, "'Dinner ready?' "'Nearly, Edgar,' replied the mother apologetically. 
"'I'm ready for mine,' said the young man, taking up the newspaper and reading. Presently the rest of the family trooped in. Dinner was served. The meal went rather brutally. The over-gentleness and apologetic tone of the mother brought out all the brutality of manners in the sons. Edgar tasted the potatoes, moved his mouth quickly like a rabbit, looked indignantly at his mother, and said, "'These potatoes are burnt, mother.' "'Yes, Edgar. I forgot them for a minute. Perhaps you'll have bread if you can't eat them.' Edgar looked in anger across at Miriam. "'What was Miriam doing that she couldn't attend to them?' he said. Miriam looked up. Her mouth opened, her dark eyes blazed and winced, but she said nothing. She swallowed her anger and her shame, bowing her dark head. "'I'm sure she was trying hard,' said the mother. "'She hasn't got sense even to boil the potatoes,' said Edgar. "'What has she kept at home for?' "'Only for eating everything that's left in the pantry,' said Morris. "'They don't forget that potato pie against our Miriam,' laughed the father. She was utterly humiliated. The mother sat in silence, suffering, like some saint out of place at the brutal board. It puzzled Paul. He wondered vaguely why all this intense feeling went running because of a few burnt potatoes. The mother exalted everything, even a bit of housework, to the plane of a religious trust. The sons resented this, they felt themselves cut away underneath, and they answered with brutality and also with a sneering superciliousness. Paul was just opening out from childhood into manhood. This atmosphere, where everything took a religious value, came with a subtle fascination to him. There was something in the air. His own mother was logical. Here there was something different, something he loved, something that at times he hated. Miriam quarrelled with her brothers fiercely. Later in the afternoon, when they had gone away again, her mother said, "'You disappointed me at dinner-time, Miriam.' The girl dropped her head. "'They are such brutes!' she suddenly cried, looking up with flashing eyes. "'But hadn't you promised not to answer them?' said the mother. "'And I believed in you. I can't stand it when you wrangle.' "'But they're so hateful!' cried Miriam. "'And—and and lo!' "'Yes, dear, but how often have I asked you not to answer Edgar back? Can't you let him say what he likes?' "'But why should he say what he likes?' "'Aren't you strong enough to bear it, Miriam, if even for my sake? Are you so weak that you must wrangle with them?' Mrs. Livers stuck unflinchingly to this doctrine of the other cheek. She could not instill it at all into the boys. With the girls she succeeded better, and Miriam was the child of her heart. The boys loathed the other cheek when it was presented to them. Miriam was often sufficiently lofty to turn it. Then they spat on her and hated her. But she walked in her proud humility, living within herself. There was always this feeling of jangle and discord in the Livers family. 
Although the boys resented so bitterly this eternal appeal to their deeper feelings of resignation and proud humility, yet it had its effect on them. They could not establish between themselves and an outsider just the ordinary human feeling and unexaggerated friendship. They were always restless for the something deeper. Ordinary folk seemed shallow to them, trivial and inconsiderable, and so they were unaccustomed, painfully uncouth in the simplest social intercourse, suffering, and yet insolent in their superiority. Then beneath was the yearning for the sole intimacy to which they could not attain because they were too dumb, and every approach to close connection was blocked by their clumsy contempt of other people. They wanted genuine intimacy, but they could not even get normally near to anyone, because they scorned to take the first steps, they scorned the triviality which forms common human intercourse. Paul fell under Mrs. Liver's spell. Everything had a religious and intensified meaning when he was with her. His soul, hurt, highly developed, sought her as if for nourishment. Together they seemed to sift the vital fact from an experience. Miriam was her mother's daughter. In the sunshine of the afternoon, mother and daughter went down the fields with him. They looked for nests. There was a Jenny Wren's in the hedge by the orchard. "'I do want you to see this,' said Mrs. Livers. He crouched down and carefully put his finger through the thorns into the round door of the nest. "'It's almost as if you were feeling inside the live body of the bird,' he said. "'It's so warm.' They say a bird makes its nest round like a cup with pressing its breast on it. Then how did it make the ceiling round, I wonder? The nest seemed to start into life for the two women. After that, Miriam came to see it every day. It seemed so close to her. Again going down the hedge-side with the girl, he noticed the celandines, scalloped splashes of gold, on the side of the ditch. "'I like them!' he said. When their petals go flat back with the sunshine, they seem to be pressing themselves at the sun. And then the Celandines ever after drew her with a little spell. Anthropomorphic as she was, she stimulated him into appreciating things thus, and then they lived for her. She seemed to need things kindling in her imagination or in her soul before she felt she had them and she was cut off from ordinary life by her religious intensity, which made the world for her either a nunnery garden or a paradise, where sin and knowledge were not, or else, an ugly, cruel thing. So it was in this atmosphere of subtle intimacy, this meeting in their common feeling for something in nature, that their love started. Personally, he was a long time before he realized her. For ten months he had to stay at home after his illness. For a while he went to Skegness with his mother, and was perfectly happy. But even from the seaside he wrote long letters to Mrs. Livers about the shore and the sea, and he brought back his beloved sketches of the flat Lincoln coast, anxious for them to see. Almost they would interest the Livers more than they interested his mother. It was not his art Mrs. Morrill cared about. It was himself and his achievement. But Mrs. Livers and her children were almost his disciples. They kindled him, 
and made him glow to his work, whereas his mother's influence was to make him quietly determined, patient, dogged, unwearied. He soon was friends with the boys, whose rudeness was only superficial. They had all, when they could trust themselves, a strange gentleness and lovableness. "'Will you come with me on to the follow?' asked Edgar, rather hesitatingly. Paul went joyfully, and spent the afternoon helping to hoe or to single turnips with his friend. He used to lie with the three brothers in the hay piled up in the barn, and tell them about Nottingham and about Jordan's. In return they taught him to milk, and let him do little jobs, chopping hay or pulping turnips, just as much as he liked. At midsummer he worked all through the hay harvest with them, and then he loved them. The family was so cut off from the world, actually, they seemed somehow like les derniers fils d'une race épuisée. Though the lads were strong and healthy, Yet they had all that oversensitiveness and hanging back which made them so lonely, yet also such close, delicate friends once their intimacy was won. Paul loved them dearly, and they him. Miriam came later. But he had come into her life before she made any mark on his. One dull afternoon, when the men were on the land and the rest at school, only Miriam and her mother at home, the girl said to him, after having hesitated for some time, "'Have you seen the swing?' "'No,' he answered. "'Where?' "'In the cowshed,' she replied. She always hesitated to offer or to show him anything. Men have such different standards of worth from women, and her dear things, the valuable things to her, her brothers had so often mocked or flouted. "'Come on, then,' he replied, jumping up. There were two cowsheds, one on either side of the barn. In the lower, darker shed there was standing for four cows. Hens flew scolding over the manger wall as the youth and girl went forward for the great thick rope which hung from the beam in the darkness overhead, and was pushed back over a peg in the wall. "'It's something like a rope!' he exclaimed appreciatively and he sat down on it, anxious to try it. Then immediately he rose. "'Come on, then, and have first go,' he said to the girl. "'See,' she answered, going into the barn, "'we put some bags on the seat,' and she made the swing comfortable for him. That gave her pleasure. He held the rope. "'Come on, then,' he said to her. "'No, I won't go first, she answered. She stood aside in her still, aloof fashion. "'Why?' "'You go,' she pleaded. Almost for the first time in her life she had the pleasure of giving up to a man, of spoiling him. Paul looked at her. "'All right,' he said, sitting down. "'Mind out!' He set off with a spring, and in a moment was flying through the air, almost out of the door of the shed, the upper half of which was open showing outside the drizzling rain, the filthy yard, the cattle standing disconsolate against the black cart-shed, and at the back of all the grey-green wall of the wood. She stood below in her crimson tam-o'-shanter and watched. He looked down at her, and she saw his blue eyes sparkling. 
"'It's a treat of a swing,' he said. "'Yes!' He was swinging through the air, every bit of him swinging, like a bird that swoops for joy of movement. And he looked down at her. Her crimson cap hung over her dark curls, her beautiful warm face, so still in a kind of brooding, was lifted towards him. It was dark and rather cold in the shed. Suddenly a swallow came down from the high roof and darted out of the door. "'I didn't know a bird was watching,' he called. He swung negligently. She could feel him falling and lifting through the air as if he were lying on some force. "'Now I'll die,' he said, in a detached, dreamy voice, as though he were the dying motion of the swing. She watched him, fascinated. Suddenly he put on the brake and jumped out. "'I've had a long turn,' he said. "'But it's a treat of a swing. It's a real treat of a swing.' Miriam was amused that he took a swing so seriously and felt so warmly over it. "'No, you go on,' she said. "'Why, don't you want one?' he asked, astonished. "'Well, not much. I, I'll have just a little.' She sat down, whilst he kept the bags in place for her. "'It's so ripping,' he said, setting her in motion. "'Keep your heels up, or they'll bang the manger wall.' She felt the accuracy with which he caught her, exactly at the right moment, and the exactly proportionate strength of his thrust, and she was afraid. Down to her bowels went the hot wave of fear. She was in his hands. Again, firm and inevitable, came the thrust at the right moment. She gripped the rope, almost swooning. Ha! she laughed in fear. No higher! But you're not a bit high! he remonstrated. But no higher! He heard the fear in her voice, and desisted. Her heart melted in hot pain when the moment came for him to thrust her forward again, but he left her alone. She began to breathe. "'Won't you really go any farther?' he asked. "'Should I keep you there?' "'No, let me go by myself,' she answered. He moved aside and watched her. "'Why, you're scarcely moving,' he said. She laughed slightly with shame, and in a moment got down. "'They say if you can swing, you won't be seasick,' he said, as he mounted again. "'I don't believe I should ever be seasick.' Away he went. There was something fascinating to her in him. For the moment he was nothing but a piece of swinging stuff, not a particle of him that did not swing. She could never lose herself so, nor could her brothers. It roused a warmth in her. It was almost as if he were a flame that had lit a warmth in her whilst he swung in the middle air. And gradually the intimacy with the family concentrated for Paul on three persons, the mother, Edgar, and Miriam. To the mother he went for that sympathy and that appeal which seemed to draw him out. Edgar was his very close friend, and to Miriam he more or less condescended, because she seemed so humble. But the girl gradually sought him out. If he brought up his sketch-book, it was she who pondered longest over the last picture. Then she would look up at him. Suddenly 
her dark eyes alight like water that shakes with a stream of gold in the dark, she would ask, "'Why do I like this so?' Always something in his breast shrank from these close, intimate, dazzled looks of hers. "'Why do you?' he asked. "'I don't know. It seems so true.' "'It's because—it's because, because there's scarcely any shadow in it. It's more shimmery, as if I'd painted the shimmering protoplasm in the leaves and everywhere, and not the stiffness of the shape. That seems dead to me. Only this shimmeriness is the real living. The shape is a dead crust. The shimmer is inside, really. And she, with her little finger in her mouth, would ponder these sayings. They gave her a feeling of life again, and vivified things which had meant nothing to her. She managed to find some meaning in his struggling, abstract speeches, and they were the medium through which she came distinctly at her beloved objects. Another day she sat at sunset whilst he was painting some pine-trees which caught the red glare from the west. He had been quiet. "'There you are,' he said suddenly. "'I wanted that. Now look at them and tell me—' Are they pine-trunks, or are they red coals, standing up pieces of fire in that darkness? There's God's burning bush for you, that burn not away." Miriam looked and was frightened, but the pine-trunks were wonderful to her, and distinct. He packed his box and rose. Suddenly he looked at her. "'Why are you always sad?' he asked her. "'Sad!' she exclaimed looking up at him with startled, wonderful brown eyes. "'Yes,' he replied. "'You are always sad.' "'I am not! Oh, not a bit!' she cried. "'But even your joy is like a flame coming off of sadness,' he persisted. "'You're never jolly, or even just all right.' "'No,' she pondered. "'I wonder why.' "'Because you're not. Because you're different inside, like a pine-tree, and then you flare up. But you're not just like an ordinary tree, with fidgety leaves and jolly—' He got tangled up in his own speech, but she brooded on it, and he had a strange, roused sensation, as if his feelings were new. She got so near him. It was a strange stimulant. Then sometimes he hated her. Her youngest brother was only five. He was a frail lad, with immense brown eyes in his quaint, fragile face, one of Reynolds's choir of angels, with a touch of elf. Often Miriam kneeled to the child and drew him to her. "'Eh, my Hubert,' she sang in a voice heavy and surcharged with love, "'eh, my Hubert!' And folding him in her arms, she swayed slightly from side to side with love, her face half-lifted, her eyes half-closed, her voice drenched with love. "'Don't!' said the child, uneasy. "'Don't, Miriam!' "'Yes, you love me, don't you?' she murmured deep in her throat, almost as if she were in a trance, and swaying also as if she were swooned in an ecstasy of love. "'Don't!' repeated the child, a frown on his clear brow. "'You love me, don't you?' she murmured. 
"'Why do you make such a fuss for?' cried Paul, all in suffering because of her extreme emotion. "'Why can't you be ordinary with him?' She let the child go, and rose, and said nothing. Her intensity, which would leave no emotion on a normal plane, irritated the youth into a frenzy. And this fearful, naked contact of her on small occasions shocked him. He was used to his mother's reserve. And on such occasions he was thankful in his heart and soul that he had his mother, so sane and wholesome. End of Part 1 of Chapter 7